Hello, and welcome to the Radical Fabulatorium. I'm your host, John Adam Ian. Okay, on today's episode, I sit down with Professor Aaron Granger. He's an instructor in the Biological Science Department at the University of New Brunswick in St. John, New Brunswick. This chat was recorded live during the radio show version of the Radical Fabulatorium, which airs on Sunday nights at 7 p.m. Atlantic Standard Time. You can stream it at localfm.ca if you're curious. So in this chat, we cover uh, quite a bit of ground. We talk about uh, kind of the nostalgic value of CDs and how some of the students coming into the college or the university these days can't seem to name a favorite album, which I thought was interesting. We talk about the difference between research and non-research faculty at the university. We talk about the difference between students simply consuming the content and having the content taught and performed to them. About how deep you have to go in chemistry before you start encountering questions and answers uh, involving quantum physics. We touch on material science, cryptography, and quantum computing versus classical computing. Uh, Professor uh, Granger fills me in on his work with iridium and spectroscopy, and how you can study a very specific niche in most any topic or subject as an academic. He explains to me how long it can actually take to get through an entire PhD program and the investment that's involved in that. We also talk about electrons, electron orbitals, why they're named the way they are, how probability is involved. We talk about how the scientific models you use as a student or as a professional change and become more and more precise and accurate the further you study the topic. Maybe the deeper you get into the weeds, so to speak. We talk about the feeling you get from solving a difficult question and how they, that may be a sign that you're suited for a research career. And we also talk about just some of the special properties of the water molecule, H2O, and how without it, most of modern society and us as humans would not be possible. All right, here we go. My chat with Professor Aaron Granger from the University of New Brunswick in St. John. All right, welcome back to the Radical Fabulatorium. I'm your host, John Adamian, here on Local FM 107.3 in St. John, New Brunswick. So thanks for coming in, uh, Aaron. I really appreciate your time here. No, happy to happy to be here. Yeah, so just before we, we went live, we were talking about the CD collection, or you were kind of talking about how uh, the vast CD collection that we're kind of surrounded by right now. That's right, yeah, very nostalgic. Very nostalgic, eh? Yeah. And you found some record, you said you found a record with someone you knew from, from back then. Yeah, the yeah. I, I saw an album by a guy I went to high school with, Adam Mowry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, fantastic uh, artist at the time. Yeah, yeah, and he's still active. I think he's got a show this weekend actually coming up. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, very cool. And uh, actually, too, before we, we went live on air, you mentioned about when you, uh, you talked to students for the first time, you asked them about their favorite albums. I do. Yeah. I do. Every year I, I typically try, you know, a set of icebreakers, the things that nobody wants to do in class. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I try to avoid the, you know, the, the personal questions. You try and get them to answer something that they'll have a really, everybody tends to have a strong opinion on, right? What's your favorite meal? What's your favorite dessert? Mm-hmm. Right. And what's your favorite album? And man, they have, they typically don't have an answer for that question anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's probably because everything's streaming now and it's singles are really... That's right. Now. I mean, that's that's certainly the way they tend to 
present it, mm-hmm. right? So they they always come back with, ah, listen, I don't know the last time I listened to an album the whole way through. Mm-hmm. You know, I go to Spotify or I go to wherever, and I I just download those those songs that I want. Yeah. Yeah, and that's so, uh, and maybe it used to be that like way back in the 50s or something when people were using, I don't know if my wife is still listening, she would she would know what I'm talking about, those little 45s, is that what that's it was right. maybe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, okay, okay, 45, so maybe it's come full circle that way where singles are, oh, maybe. are where it's at. But I mean, I, I don't know about you, but when I, certainly when I was a kid dating myself a little bit here, mm-hmm. you know, I, I certainly sat there with a tape recorder Yeah, and you'd record individual songs, right? It, you'd get your own singles. It's true. Yeah, it's definitely true. Yeah, yeah I mean, we're not endorsing piracy here. Certainly no, no. not. But mm-hmm. it was the same way when burnt CDs first came around. I mean, I was like <laughs> exactly. fourteen or fifteen, and um, when Napster and all that stuff started to happen, no, same thing. Right. You just burn. You just burn yeah. CDs. It was the wild west out there. <laughs> it was the wild west. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. Um, but yeah, and also, so talking about students again, like that's what's kind of interesting about being. Like I've been working here since December, and seeing people come in here and be like, they're maybe twenty or whatever, and they're blown away by the music that like all the CDs and stuff and like CD players. And I just find it really fascinating watching the younger generation. Well, and it's funny, right? Because it it wasn't that long a time. Mm -hmm. It's, it's just a very sudden shift to completely digital. Yeah. Right. So they, I mean, and they're, they're like this in a lot of ways. I mean, they don't even think about it in terms of computer software, Mm -hmm. right? When you, you buy a new video game or a new, you know, a new piece of software and you would have to install it off of, I mean, heaven forbid a disc, uh, <laughs> yeah. but you know, a floppy disc or something, but not yeah. even a CD. Right. I mean, most of them, you know, you see them come to class, they have a laptop or something. They don't even have a, a CD drive. Yeah. It's yes. <laughs> Times have changed. <laughs> Times have changed. Yeah. And even the hard drives are solid state. So there's not even any moving parts. No, nothing spins <laughs> in that anymore. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's really interesting. And a lot of video games are just download codes in a box. Uh, well, that's right. Yeah, yeah. You just or buy you piece of get them off of Steam or something. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's far cry from <laughs> when I grew up. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know, that's probably. I mean, every generation goes through that. But yeah, I guess we're uh, enough rantings of my old, my old brain. I guess. <laughs> so you, I, I, so I wanted to talk to you specifically because I was kind of wandering around UMB when I first started working here, and I saw you listed as like a science communicator. Yes. So we, that's right. We have in the bottom of Ganong Hall posters of all of the faculty in the Department of Biological Sciences. Mm-hmm. And we have to, we had to, you know, provide a headshot okay. and we had to, you know, provide some photos and uh, a list of research interests. So this is, it's funny, it's an example of a time where it really comes to the forefront that there are two different types of faculty on okay. campus. Okay. Right. So you have the the traditional faculty that most people think of, uh, the research faculty, right? People who have their research programs and graduate students and they also teach the courses. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's, I mean, the traditional stereotype of the professor. Okay. And then at UMB and most schools now, we have a second stream, which is um, teaching faculty, so okay. people without a research program. Mm-hmm. So that would be something like me. Okay. So uh, teaching faculty don't have any graduate students typically. We don't have uh, research projects that we have to do. Our job is entirely education-based. Okay. So when they came to me and they asked, said, we need to put you on a poster, you're a faculty member in the department. Okay. What should we put as your research interests? Okay. And I said, oh, God, I don't know. I I don't do any, so I don't. It doesn't apply. Mm-hmm. 
And I said, well, we got to put something. So we need you to, we need you to come up with a list of topics and they're all going on there. (laughs) So I, I put a few things and some of them were from uh, when I was a student myself, when I was doing my PhD, okay, right? So some of the research I was involved in and things that I'm still interested in. Uh, but the other part of it was uh, much more teaching related. And it was this idea of science outreach, mm-hmm. uh, you know, chemistry outreach specifically, that's my field, but more generally any type of science outreach. Okay. Um, so the, yeah, that's that's what we ended up going with. Okay. And it was sort of a, a placeholder, but it's it's pretty reflective of, you know, my, my past career and what I'm interested in currently. Okay, cool. Yeah. And so you say that, and uh, I was one, like, just a few days ago, I reached out to a UMB student I know just to ask, uh, and she pointed out that there's different types of professors, like you just mm. said. And I actually had no idea. I was just totally assumed every professor did the same thing, the research and teaching. Yeah, absolutely. But that must be like, obviously that would divide the the professor's attention. So there must be some that are researching so much that they're neglecting their teaching or... So, yeah, I mean, you've kind of hit the nail on the head. I mean, I I certainly would never speak ill of any colleagues, but it's it's a question of amount of time in the day, right? Mm -hmm. So their their time is absolutely divided Mm -hmm. and they occasionally have to prioritize. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... You know, there there are some official differences and there are some unofficial differences uh, between the two different streams of faculty. And one way to address that problem is um, when you look at the teaching loads that research versus non-research faculty have. Mm-hmm. So to, to alleviate that concern, uh, what they've done is research faculty typically have a lighter teaching load. So they teach fewer course number uh, courses or Typically, it's done in terms of credit hours. Okay. Um, so they, you know, it's it's understood that this is a potential concern. Mm-hmm. And given that, you know, a, a person's research record and the amount of publications, the amount of grad students they get out uh, affects their ability to get funding, which affects their ability to do their jobs effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's well understood. And they try to avoid having that have a negative impact on their teaching, right? And by extension on the students. Yep. So they typically get the lighter teaching loads and then the teaching faculty are are basically, that's their full-time, that's our full-time job. Mm-hmm. So we typically have uh, more courses and we typically teach the, typically, although not always, the larger classes, the introductory stuff. Okay. Right, so the, so the things that are often more time intensive. Okay. Not exclusively, but mm-hmm. generally. That seems like a win-win for both faculty streams, really. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah. It's it's really, it's really the ideal situation, mm-hmm. um, you know. Because research, don't get me wrong, is one hundred percent fun. Mm-hmm. You get to go out there, you get to explore science, you get to discover new things, even if they're not, you know, earth-shattering, you know, Nobel Prize-winning stuff. You get to find something new. Mm-hmm. And just the the rush you get off of that, cracking a problem is unbelievable, mm-hmm. right? But there are definite downsides to doing research as well, right? You have to, you're constantly begging for money. You're constantly worried about publications, about getting students through. And it, it can be, in a lot of ways, very, very stressful. Okay. And if that, if that research part of it is not just, you know, something that grabs you to your core, mm-hmm then you're going to have a hard time of it. 
But then you get a teaching position where it's strictly teaching and you get to come in and you get to hang out with the students. You get to be in the labs. You get to do all the the educational parts of it, which lots of professors in the research stream enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, but you get to do all of that without any of the side hassle of maintaining a whole research program. Mm-hmm. So it's it's fantastic. Yeah. Okay. And so that would, and, and, and it also gives professors that would have, because I mean, obviously certain people would be more interested in research and certain people would be more interested in teaching just in general. So oh, now course. you have the options to, as a professor That's right. pursuing that as your career. Yeah, you, you have a lot more flexibility. Yeah. And, and certainly I think most schools are going that way now. Okay. They're hiring a lot more um, teaching, specifically teaching faculty members. And there are lots of reasons for that. I mean, one is that you you don't have that divided attention, like you, you mentioned, is, is a risk. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other is that if you give somebody a dedicated role like this with a, a kind of core limited number of courses, mm-hmm. it provides a lot of consistency. Um, and, you know, on the other hand, not, not a slight, it, it does typically pay a little bit less. Okay. Right. So there, it's not, it's not quite a two tier system, but you know, you're, you're making a decision when you take that kind of job. Okay. Understandable. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. So that's, it's interesting that just yeah, last week I had no idea. I just assumed there's one type of professor and. Oh no, yeah. it's a, it's a whole layered ecosystem here. It's, yeah. it's pretty exciting. That's really, really interesting. So what's the best, do you nor- normally focus on first year students? Yeah. So okay. we, we're a kind of a weird department, right? The department of biological sciences, it's kind of deliberately vague. Okay. So the, the department contains all of the biology people. It contains, uh, a handful of chemists like me. It contains a geologist. It contains a couple of physics people. It's sort of all of the, the kind of standard sciences that you think of okay. under one umbrella. Mm-hmm. Um, so because of that hodgepodge kind of structure, we we only offer a certain number of degree programs on campus, so we don't offer a full chemistry program. Okay. So we offer enough courses for a minor, and we offer enough chemistry courses uh, kind of to support all of the other sciences. So okay. that means we teach largely first and second year kind of content. Mm-hmm. So I'm generally, although not on paper anywhere, the person that does the first year lectures, the first year labs, mostly. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. And then if you wanted to pursue chemistry for a major, you'd have, you'd maybe switch over to Fredericton? That's right. Yeah. Okay. If you were interested in doing chemistry, uh, historically you could do a full two years on, on the St. John campus, but that hasn't been true for over a decade. Okay. Uh, so now it's, you can get pretty well a, gene- a general first year education. Mm-hmm. And then if you want to do chemistry specifically, we, we ship you up river to the, up the, the bigger campus, right? Yeah, yeah. Up to the capital city. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So what's the best part about um, steeding, teaching a batch of fresh students, new students, new minds? The best part for me is you get them fresh. Okay. Right. So you get them because I focus on the first years, I get them before they've had a university experience. Mm-hmm. And generally, I mean, so I, I my first year chem course is a 930. Okay. Uh, so a lot of the time I get them for my very first class of the new year. Okay. So before any any of the other jerks get a hold of them, <laughs> I get them, right? Yeah. So it's, it's kind of fun. You get to see them develop. And because I teach the lecture and the associated lab and it, 
intro chem is a required course for pretty well every science. Mm-hmm. Uh, I get all of them and I get them for a whole year. Okay. So I don't get them for just one term. Mm-hmm. It's a required course. They've got to be there, love it or hate it. Mm-hmm. And it means that I get them for a long enough time that you you start to build a rapport. Okay. You know, certainly not with every person. There's, you know, 200 people in the class, but you get a big chunk of them and you get to build that relationship. So you you see them, they'll come back to you. They'll take some of your courses in second year or they'll come back to you if they need help or like they start to trust you and you can you can build a relationship. Okay. Right. Which is just, it's fantastic. Yeah. And is it kind of like, um, like they're teaching you at the same time, you know, like it goes both ways. They, they, with their, with their new, in, like they see it from a different angle, you know? Man. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, 100%. Yeah. I, I get less and less new every year, but I would say my first five years in that, this position, mm-hmm. every, every year I left with more than a handful of holy smokes. How did I not think of it that way? Right. They, because they come in with no preconceptions. They don't know anything. Mm-hmm. Right. It's they're brand new to the field. I mean, they've had a, a little bit in high school, but you know, not really any deep exposure to the content. And so they'll ask stuff that is just so foreign to any expert, mm-hmm. e- even an upper year undergraduate student that they catch you off guard. They ask the hardest questions because they don't have a lot of background. Okay. Right. It's like, it's like hanging out with little kids, right? They'll ask you, why is the sky blue? Yeah. And you stop and you're like, man, I don't, I don't know. Who knows that? (laughs) Yeah. Um, But if you, if you go on and you take a second year spectroscopy course, uh, we can teach you. Okay. Why the sky is blue. Yeah. Right. But it's, it's one of those things. They, they ask the hard questions because they ask, fundamental questions. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, every year they'll hit you with something out of left field. Yeah. That's really interesting. It must be not, yeah, it'd be nice to keep it. it, So it keeps on your toes, I would imagine, but it's nice to have that kind of recycle every year to stay, to stay, um, challenged. That's how I Well, it it. is. I mean, it's somewhat, it is funny. I I enjoy it far more than they do when this happens. (laughs) Okay. Uh, my, my thought is that, you know, any, any chump can, do science to some degree. It's not like the content isn't out there, right? You can buy a textbook or you can go on to Cod Academy online, right? Or, you know, you can watch Hank Green do a crash course video for this intro science stuff. You can get the content. Mm -hmm. Um, The fun part of it, the teaching is when you get up against something where you have to make a decision or you got to make a judgment call or there are multiple different factors at play, Right. And they, students typically don't like that. They like there to be a, a single clean answer. Okay. But often because they're asking such fundamental things, they get you to the point where you're like, oh, geez, mm-hmm. I don't know. Like this factor matters, but so does this one. And I, honest to goodness, man, I don't know which one matters more. Mm-hmm. Right. So they, they get you puzzles. Okay. Right. They get you questions in the gray area where there's not a black and white answer. And, mm-hmm. and honestly, that's the fun part of science. Okay. Right. It's yeah. the, the actual facts are, eh, that's okay. Yeah. It's the weird stuff, right? The stuff that makes you stop and say, all oh, right, that it, I have no idea what the answer to that is. That's an awesome question. Yeah. Um, they don't, <laughs> they, they kind of hope that there's a clean answer though. Uh-huh. 
Not always though. No, never. Yeah. I mean, almost never. Almost never. And yeah. some of that fundamental stuff. They, do you ever get a point where the like a student still is like wondering why a fundamental fact is fundamental, and you're just kind of like, oh, all the time. You can't go any deeper. This yeah, is it. yeah. This is no. the fundamental. Oh man, all the time, right? Because it's really, really easy. Most students, if you ask them a question, they'll give you the surface level answer, right? Like the one from the first paragraph of that section of the textbook, they can totally do it, okay. right? And then they'll ask you like, yeah, okay, but why? Mm -hmm. Why is that the way it is? And you can give them a better answer. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes they say, okay, but that brings up another, like a follow-up. So why now? And mm -hmm. you can give them that third level answer. And it doesn't take very many whys before you come up against... I don't know, man, quantum mechanics or something like <laughs> yeah. it's, it, it's really remarkable how quickly you can get down to, I've got an idea and I can kind of explain it to you, but we're both going to need to take a lot more math, mm -hmm. right? We're going to need to take another undergrad in physics to really get at this question, mm -hmm. right? Two or three layers. That's, that's all it takes for most questions, Yeah, which is bananas. <laughs> yeah, it is pretty, it's pretty interesting to think about before you're deep into uh yeah, you mentioned quantum world, like, uh, Oh yeah. Yeah. Quantum physics. And then, I mean, cause that's, that's a, would that be on the leading edge, you know, of science right now? Quantum, quantum mechanics, quantum physics. Well, I mean, yes and no. Right. I mean, so now, now people are doing so much in the way of like genetic manipulation or things with material science, right? Making new and interesting materials. I don't know if you've, um, you know, heard about the, oh, what is his name? Anyway, some some artists developing or being involved in the development of, you know, the, the blackest of all black pigments, like one absorbs 99.9% .9 of light or uh, people making thin layered materials onto glass that can change opacity with applying electric currents, right? So you can make self-darkening windows, which okay. allows you to make better solar panels and things like a lot of it is in the, the area of materials okay. science. I mean, certainly quantum stuff is, is there's tons of research around it. Mm -hmm. um, and if you get into the fields of uh, mathematics or physics, that's their jam. Mm -hmm. uh, and certainly if you get into the area of cryptography, right? Like making encryption devices or processes for communications equipment, that kind of thing. That's is a huge area uh, for quantum research. And they're kind of worried that quantum computers are going to be able to break some of their en encryption. Yeah. I mean, that's right? absolutely something that they, they think about. Uh, I mean, I, I certainly don't think we're there yet. No. Um, but yeah, I mean, with the the sheer volume of calculations you can do, you know, things that would take a traditional computer centuries or yeah. thousands or millions of years to kind of brute force yeah. solve, quantum computers can do it kind of orders of magnitude faster, yeah. theoretically, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, no, so absolutely, people are thinking about that. Yeah. And I'd, that's hard to think about. I'm sure maybe listeners didn't even notice, but it's like literally they can, it might take a computer a thousand years to do a problem that a quantum computer could do in a day or a minute. Like, yeah, Like no. a thousand years down to actually being able to get an answer from the other device. That's right. And it's <laughs> it's one of those things, it's hard because the the content, the 
the information underlying those processes, it's so complicated, Mm -hmm. right? That unless you're in that area, all you've got is kind of hand wavy explanations of how it works. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's something that, that I always find really interesting, but I've never made, you know, never done a deep dive on it. I simply don't have the math background to even have a deep conversation about it, right? <laughs> yeah. It's it's so it's so remarkably complex, so specific mm-hmm. uh, an area of research that if you don't get into it early, it's yeah. I feel like it would be really hard to get into late. Yeah, yeah. It seems uh, yeah. I'd like to get deep into it, just skim the surface. Yeah, I'd like to go deeper into it because it's like um, it's so irrational. Like quantum stuff seems so irrational and counterintuitive, but yet it still is such a successful theory. And so far, like um, oh yeah, no, it, it certainly works really well, yeah. and and it's the underpinnings of basically all of modern science, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, but the actual content, you know, it's funny. Very few people actually go and study deeply the quantum mechanics or quantum theory, mm-hmm. right? A lot of us in the fields of chemistry, in the fields of physics, like a lot of us are exposed to it. Um, you know, we have a couple of courses in undergrad, maybe if we're lucky, a graduate course. Uh, but unless you go into that kind of specific subfield, mm-hmm. that's pretty much the exposure that you get. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's really, everything in science is so niche nowadays, we we kind of silo off really okay. deeply. Okay. And so people tend to be experts in like these hyper-specific fields. Okay. Right, so my, my background for, you know, as an example is I'm a chemist, right? I have a PhD, it says chemistry on it. Mm-hmm. But my background is this really weird intersection of physics and chemistry where I understand better than most people how electrons behave in these really, really uncommon two-atom systems that basically exist nowhere in the world outside of the little reaction chamber I built them in. Okay. Right? And they're short-lived. They live for milliseconds at the longest okay. uh, before they decompose into something else, mm-hmm. right? So we, we become really, really, really deeply specific subject matter experts. Okay. And, you know, that's not to say that we don't have relatively broad expertise in our general field sure. or, or anything, but we know a lot about a really narrow subset of stuff. Okay. Yeah. It's super bizarre. Interesting. And is that specifically with your work on like iridium atoms? Is that right? Or yeah, I, so I I worked primarily with iridium, which is a, a transition metal, um, really really dense material, really hard, uh, super super uncommon material. Nobody's gonna handle iridium in their day to day life. Okay, and I would work with iridium paired with one other material. Okay. So iridium with hydrogen or iridium with phosphorus uh, or chlorine or fluorine, uh, but just these weird two-atom, super transient uh, materials. So, I mean, we applied kind of known techniques, known methods to examine those, you know, stuff that's a little bit more transferable. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's just these ultra, ultra-specific things. They... There's a really good graphic that, you know, some of the listeners may have seen if they they frequent the sciencey sides of the internet okay. where the idea is 
or even, I guess, more generally, the academic sides of the internet, where you know you have the a sphere representing the the sum of all knowledge, uh, you know, the generally known things, and then you have a a bump coming off of that sphere or circle representing an undergrad and then a, a smaller bump representing a master's degree okay. and then this super tiny barely visible bump representing you know the boundary that you've pushed to get a, a PhD this tiny fraction of this massive whole uh, sum of human knowledge okay yeah so we're we're really we're bizarre specialists that's interesting yeah yeah that, that makes it really so you can kind of pursue any of your uh like whatever your passion is, like you can kind of follow it. Oh yeah, do a very hyper specific. You can go yeah. to the the logical conclusion. <laughs> very cool. Uh, with with just about anything, and certainly not just science, right? Any form of academic mm -hmm. uh, research, you can get to the cutting edge of this hyper niche material, right? I mean, you can <laughs> if you wanted to go the humanities route, you could you could examine the way one specific author uses one specific type of literary device mm -hmm. specifically in that author's short form science fiction, right? If you wanted to <laughs> yeah. go that, that route. Okay. Yeah. That's and that's, that's the way academics work. We just, we're hyper nerdy about yeah. bizarre things that no one else cares about most of the time. That's interesting. And then you only really hear of the, the, the huge breakthroughs more like, more like. Oh right? yeah, certainly yeah. the general public. I yeah, mean, they're, yeah, they're the not going to hear about my work yeah. on Iridium systems. That's totally totally irrelevant I mean, to, to most people, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's one of those things. We often work on these projects in, in academia because we're nerdy, curious people, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's not, mostly we don't go into it looking to make some Nobel Prize winning breakthrough or, you know, some discovery that'll earn us a million dollars, right? If we make some company, mm -hmm. uh, we get really into something and then we decide, oh, well, we kind of want to know more about this. And then we learn more and we do an undergrad and we do a master's degree. Mm -hmm. And then we decide, okay, I'd like to go one step further and I want to become a real expert at a something. Mm -hmm. And we do a PhD. And to do that, you have to answer a specific question. So that means you have to pick something, right? You might be broadly interested in the field, but you're going to narrow in on something. And a lot of times it's actually pretty difficult to choose because, you know, we're curious people. We want to know yeah. about everything, mm -hmm. but you have to eventually bite the bullet and grab one. And stay dedicated for two years. Is that what it takes after your master's? To get oh a PhD? man, I wish. Okay. That much sounds yeah, much generally much longer. <laughs> okay. So on, on paper, uh, if everything follows the kind of typical, prototypical approach, right? It's four years undergrad, two years master's degree, four years PhD. Okay. So you're in there, you're, you're in for a while. It's a grind. Uh, yeah, it is a grind. Uh, but typically the people that make it all the way through, it doesn't, you know, what do they say? If you, if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life yeah. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's pretty similar. You've got to be okay. really invested in order to make it through. But if you are that invested, it it's not usually a huge hardship. It's pretty fun. Okay. So yeah, if we, <laughs> on paper, it's like 10 years. Okay. Um, 
I mean, with that, there's a ton of variation, right? I think the average undergrad now stretching up nearer to five years, uh, the average master's closer to three, PhD closer to five or six. Okay. So it actually on, on average is bananas longer. Wow. Yeah. So like we're talking 12, Yeah, it years. wouldn't be uncommon. Yeah. Certainly, I, I know when I went through, I was, of the PhD students that I was pals with, I made it through in something like four years plus a summer. Okay. And I was considered fast. And that's fast. Yeah, wow. that was, I, but I mean, I had a, a great supervisor mm-hmm. and I had a project that worked really cleanly and okay. like things just kind of went according to plan. Okay. Right. Which is not, not common not, yeah. in the, in the research fields. Okay. So yeah, I, I was considered quick at four and a bit. Okay, cool. Wow, that's good to know. That's interesting. So, um, actually, you mentioned iridium's a transitional metal. Yeah, uh, typically, uh, typically we call it a transition metal, transition metal, or uh, a D block metal. Sometimes we call them uh, the ones right in the middle of the periodic table. Oh, okay, okay. And does it literally transition in some form, or like is that is what? what is no, that it's a historical name. It's Lot, a historical name. Lots okay. of uh, lots of the names for things related to the periodic table, related to atoms. Mm-hmm. Um, are are really dated from um, like the 1800s okay. or slightly well no 1800s up through 1900s I guess early okay. early 19 um, and so a lot of the language is related to the discovery process so I don't know I don't know what your chemistry background is uh, but certainly if you went through high school chemistry you may have heard uh, that atoms have orbitals mm-hmm. these are places around an atom where the electrons hang out. Um, And these orbitals have these really weird names. They're called S orbitals and P orbitals and D and F. And it feels like kind of an arbitrary set of labels to use, right? Mm -hmm. They're not even in alphabetical order. They're not... Uh, the start of the alphabet, they're not at the end. They're not Greek letters like you would commonly find in science. It's just really kind of random set of labels. Mm-hmm. But they're holdovers from how those orbitals were discovered. Okay. Right? They represent uh, the way electron transitions, mm-hmm. the way electron movement in an atom was originally detected, which was on photographic plates. Okay. And they would they would find that the atoms with their electrons that are moving around would release light in certain patterns. And those patterns were often in the form of lines. And so they would call a sharp line an S orbital, right? S for sharp. S for sharp. Okay. Or D for diffuse. Huh. Right? Okay. So they, they have all these names that are kind of holdovers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's true of tons of things in science. It's the same reason you end up with... Um, the periodic table having different letter combinations for the symbols than you you might expect, right? Oh, yeah. Things like tin, the metal tin having the label SN mm-hmm. or mercury being HG mm-hmm. or lead being PB, right? They have all these things where uh, that's none of those letters are even in the name. Okay. Right? But those yeah. are, they're old, uh, often Greek or Latin names for these materials because, you know, that was the the languages of the educated people at the time. Mm-hmm. And then they just kind of are holdovers, right? Yeah. So PB for plumbum, 
for lead, right? From the Latin, mm -hmm. right? And you get, you get all sorts of things like that, or you get like uh, tungsten, right? It's a, you know, famously hard metal, uh, you use it in steel to make it, make it tougher. Um, that tungsten has the symbol W, right? From the German Wolfram. Okay. Right. So huh. it's uh, Wolfram, uh, being German, the German's a super common, uh, chemistry language, right? For whatever reason, uh, German speaking people were really big in early chemistry. Okay. Right. So you end up with all sorts of little Easter eggs like that. Interesting. Yeah. And even cause like electrons, people always imagine it like orbiting like a planet, but it's more like probability clouds or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so originally, well, originally not for very long, that was absolutely the way, uh, we described electrons as being in these planetary orbits uh, around around the atom, around the nucleus, mm -hmm. and it was it was really quickly identified that there's a huge gaping hole in that concept, right? Which is that well, those electrons are still moving around in the real world, mm -hmm. right? So they're going to lose energy over time, right? Whether it's friction or you know, electron to electron interactions or just gravity. Okay. Right. So they're going to be experiencing these other forces and eventually they should decay in their orbits and they should crash into the nucleus. Mm -hmm. But I mean, that doesn't happen, right? Atoms are generally pretty stable things. The electrons aren't zipping around, crashing into the nucleus mm -hmm. uh, in general, right? Yeah. Uh, so really quickly, people recognize yeah, there's a big flaw in that. Interesting. And so now, as you say, they describe them as... Uh, wave particle type combinations, right? Where depending on how you interact with them, they have these different properties. And because of that, we have, we have to describe them in terms of probabilities. Mm -hmm. So we talk about orbitals as opposed to orbits like a planet. Uh, and these orbitals are these three-dimensional areas in space where you have a chance of finding an electron, <laughs> right? And we typically show, we typically draw the orbitals at like what we call a a 95% likelihood. Okay. So we have to have a cutoff, right? And so we say, yeah, most of the time the electron's going to be somewhere in this general volume. Okay. Right? But actually, at, because it's a probability, that area extends infinitely, right? So technically, you know, the atom in your left shoulder mm -hmm one of those electrons in there has a probability of being found on the other side of the universe. It, I mean, it's vanishingly low, right? Yeah. But technically there's a probability, right? Mm -hmm. So it's really, it's super bizarre. Yeah. And this is where the quantum mechanics stuff kicks in, right? Because at that point, nobody's wrapping their head around that. Mm -hmm. Not, not really, not without a lot of dedicated study, right? So we typically behave as if the electrons exist in these really tightly defined areas in space around the uh, the atom mm -hmm. because you can't be worried about what's happening to this electron right in in Norway yeah right it, it's just it's <laughs> yeah. it's too it's too hard to wrap your head around yeah and then the other thing is practically you don't need to yeah right i mean so a lot of a lot of our our models that we use to talk about science are not actually the best models, but they're the most practical models most of the time. Okay. Yeah. So we, we typically teach students, uh, all sorts of stuff that 
is just absolutely not true, mm-hmm. right? We teach them, and the way I describe it, you know, to first years, right? You try and a lot of a lot of teaching is performative, right? So I mean, a lot of it is you're just doing. 60 minutes of improv up at the front of a room, okay. right? You got to keep their attention, yeah. right? So the way I typically describe it is we just teach you a bunch of lies. And then every subsequent course you take, the lies get a little bit better, okay, right? And you get closer and closer to a, you know, quote unquote, real description of the way things work. Okay. But I mean, a more sciencey way of phrasing that is you start using more and more strictly defined, more technically valid models to describe behavior of properties or atoms or whatever you're talking about. Okay. Right? So your models get more robust. Okay. But a lot of the times, you don't need that high precision. You can do with a pretty loosey-goosey description of things. Mm -hmm. So certainly, like, our, our organic students, you know, students taking second year organic chemistry, they use... You know, if any of them happen to be listening, they use a hybrid, a hybrid orbital model, and that is just the most hilariously not valid description. But it works for organic molecules okay. like ninety nine percent of the time. Yeah. Right, and it's just it's so efficient that you're not going to throw it out. Okay. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's practical. It works for what you need to do. And if you want to go deeper, you can wander down that path and study it, but um, Absolutely, for right? all practical purposes. And see, this is the thing, right? This is where you would do a master's degree or a PhD. You would work with those edge cases, okay. right? The stuff where the models break mm-hmm. down, where it doesn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. And you're like, all right, why is it breaking down? Why is the model not working here? What's different, Okay, right? You get to the the place where there's a friction point, mm-hmm. right? And that's the interesting part for most scientists. It's, all right, when things aren't working the way you expect them to, that's not a problem. That's awesome, mm-hmm. right? That means, oh, I've got something I can work with now. Yeah. Right? That's the that's the best part about it. Yeah. That's maybe that classic eureka moment or you're, you're hoping to, to chase that, yeah. that uh, paradigm the, shift. The best part about science is never when something works. So I've... I'll pull that back. Often, the best part of it, science, is not when something works the way you expect it to. Mm-hmm. Often, the best part is when you're like, "What just happened?" Yeah, right. When you when you cock your head to the side and you're like, "Oh man, that's weird." Mm-hmm. That's the best part because that means something strange is happening. Mm-hmm. Right? It means you've got you've got a puzzle that you get to untie. Mm-hmm. And I, I again, I can't speak for everybody, but I know back when I was an active researcher, the feeling of cracking a problem, right? Mm-hmm. When you break that thing open and all that's left is tying up the loose ends, but you know you got the, to the guts of that problem, that yeah. is, my God. Like, if you get that a handful of times in your career, mm-hmm. like, that's the feeling, right? <laughs> that's the high that everybody's chasing. Okay. And and certainly, if you don't get if you don't get that high, like if that doesn't do it for you, yeah, research is probably not your friend. Okay, yeah. So that may be a good way to identify if you're into it or not. Yeah, if you person. can, if you can put up with like ninety nine percent slog, yeah. for that one percent reward, mm-hmm. then maybe yeah, maybe research is for you. <laughs> Absolutely. That makes me think of the arts arts world a little bit or music. Like I, I do songwriting and I come. That's kind of my first love was music, and. Uh, it's, I was, you mentioned about the kind of the, um, oh, that's interesting, like when something doesn't work out that way. In recording studios, a lot of times you'll play what is perceived as a mistake 
And then when you listen back, you're like, oh, wait a minute. The oh, mis- that's way the better mistake than we is actually leading us down this path that's it's more interesting that's right, than yeah. what we Even if planned. it's not refined. Yeah. Right? Even if it's just, oh, I don't know what that is. Yeah. Let's follow it up. It can very quickly change your entire, whatever mental model you had. That's right. Hearing that mistake or seeing something different can just instantly rearrange things in a microsecond. It's very interesting. Yeah. Well, and that, I mean, I think that's true for most creative fields. Yeah, probably right? I mean, you think about that with, you know, visual arts as well. I mean, surely yep. the way people develop their own style, right? I mean, you have to learn from somebody generally, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're doing, if you're doing painting and then you screw up in the methodology and you're like, oh, geez, I like, I like that. That's different, right? I mean, surely that's how people develop trademark styles, right? Yeah. It's got to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. But it can be scary or people can uh, convince themselves not to do that because it's outside of something that's oh, definable. absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's true in all fields, you know, academic, artistic, whatever. People are much more comfortable not breaking the rules. That's mm-hmm. yeah, it's terrifying because most of the time it doesn't work out. Yeah. Right. Breaking the rule. The rules are there for a reason. They mm-hmm. work. Yeah. But sometimes you got to push it a little. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it can take a while and everyone, and even once you figure it out or something works out in your favor and everyone's on your side, you can remember they weren't on your side. <laughs> they weren't on your that's side right. at first. Yeah. And you can, you can have a real nice, I told you so. Yeah. I told you so. Yeah. Yeah. That's not a bad thing. Yeah. So, um, just a, just kind of a nerdy question, maybe, uh, one of the things I do remember, so I took chemistry, um, I actually didn't take it in high school. I, I, I didn't bother taking chemistry in high school. I only took physics, but then I took it when I went to NBCC mm-hmm. and I remember talking, people were talking about how important or how special, like the water, the chemistry of water, like H2O is. Yeah. Is that something that, um, I just kind of want to say that in general, like, do you have anything to say about the mystery of H2O? So, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I absolutely do. So water is water is one of those really fun materials, and I think everybody that is interested in kind of general science education at some point gets involved, gets interested in water to some degree, even if it's only to do that kind of smug. Oh, are you drinking dihydrogen monoxide? <laughs> yeah. Right. It sounds like this terrifying, scary chemical. Uh, well, you're actually just drinking water. Like, even if it's just at that level, yeah. I think everybody that's interested in science gets exposed to this idea that water's different. Right. I mean, because dihydrogen monoxide, if you're blindly following kind of naming rules for for chemicals, that's absolutely a valid name. People would understand what you mean. And when you say it like that, it does sound scary, mm-hmm. right? Which is so cool, right? Because it it really, it's a, you know, a bit of a meme at this point. Like it's a joke. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, I mean, people make the joke because sometimes people are scared mm-hmm. of chemically sounding names, right? So it's it's definitely something that, gets you interested, at least as an educator, you say, oh, that's dumb. Like, oh no, but that's pretty valid. And then, you know, if you do any looking, right, or you take any, certainly any introductory chemistry courses, water's going to come up all the time. Mm -hmm. And it does for a couple of reasons. One, it's just, I mean, it's water, right? It's everywhere. Mm -hmm. You know, it's in the air we breathe, it's in the, the food we eat, it's everywhere. So it's, it's clearly very important 
just to people in general. So it's worth looking at. I mean, if that alone, just its ubiquity, the fact that it's everywhere is is interesting enough. Mm-hmm. I mean, what other liquid can you think of that you encounter literally every day? Mm-hmm. Right? In measurable amounts. Yeah. In all forms, really. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's it. I mean, what else is there? Gasoline, mm-hmm. maybe, right? In your car. But you're not handling it every day. Mm-hmm. You're not washing your face. You're not drinking it. Yeah. Right? So it's certainly curious there. And then you say, okay, well, well what's so interesting about it that makes it so common and so prevalent in our lives? And then you start to look at, you know, what's, okay, what's water made of? Well, it's made out of two hydrogen atoms and an oxygen. And you say, okay, cool, pretty common elements. That's nothing surprising. And all right, let's look at what what it looks like, right? And you say, okay, well, the oxygen's going to be in the middle. The hydrogens are going to stick off of it. Mm-hmm. Right? They're going to bond to the sides of it. And you think, okay, so it's a straight line, right? Hydrogen, then oxygen, then hydrogen. And if you look at it, it turns out, no, it's not. It's bent, right? So you get this shape where you've got oxygen at the top and you've got a couple of hydrogens jammed to it, but then shoved down towards the bottom, and I say, okay, is that meaningful in any way? And turns out, yeah, it's crazy meaningful, right? So that shape makes water what we would call polar. It means you have an uneven distribution of electrons in that molecule. Okay. It's got more of them near the oxygens. It's got less of them near the hydrogens. And so if you have more, ox- or more electrons, you're slightly more negatively charged. And if you have less, like near the hydrogens, you're a little bit positive, mm-hmm. right? And so that means this material is going to work a lot like magnets, right? With their north and south poles, mm-hmm. and north poles are attracted to south and vice versa. Well, the same thing's true with charges. Positives and negatives attract each other. So if you've got this nice bent structure with positive on one side and negative on the other, what can happen is they can kind of almost click together. Okay. And so all the water molecules are going to be attracted to all the other water molecules, right? And so what this does is this gives water all sorts of really weird properties that are really uncommon for liquids. So it gives it this really high surface tension so you can get uh, balls forming, right? Like you've seen beads of water, right? They hold together and they can get relatively big, Mm -hmm. right? And that's due to the surface tension that you get from this really, really polar structure, right? With all the atoms really, really strongly attracted to all the other ones. Okay. Uh, And it's also why we can use water as a coolant, right? Water has what we would call a really, really large specific heat capacity. It means you can dump a lot of heat into water, Mm -hmm. heat being the very specific science definition here. So heat energy, a lot of heat energy can go into water before it warms up. So you can dump in five, 10 times the amount of heat into water than you could into a similarly sized piece of metal. Okay. Right? So if you had one gram of water and one gram of metal mm-hmm. and we dumped the same amount of heat into it, the metal's going to get crazy hot. Like the temperature change is going to be dramatic. Mm-hmm. Like you could burn yourself hot. Okay. And the water would be almost the same temperature. Mm-hmm. Right? And so this is so weird. Like nothing else, not nothing, but almost nothing else has these kinds of properties, right? So you can pick a liquid, any other liquid you want, and it doesn't behave like that, mm-hmm. right? And so super, super weird material. And if you want, 
you know, and I get my students to do this, you can work all the way back to a couple of simple atomic properties. And you can work about based on the idea of, all right, how big are atoms, right? There's a trend that you can measure in size. And how electronegative are they? Which is a really weird property that kind of describes how much atoms want electrons. Okay. And cool. But this is, it's all stuff that you learn about in high school chemistry, right? You can use high school level, super simple models like we talked about, right? Mm-hmm. Ones that aren't really good, but they work most of the time. Mm-hmm. A high school student could predict water's weird properties based on a couple of things that they were taught, you know, in between French and gym. Well, yeah. Yeah. So it's, <laughs> it's super, super neat. It's, it's a really, it's a really easily usable model to, to talk about these properties like okay. as a teaching aid. Yeah. But then when you do a deep dive, man, when you start asking why, yeah, it doesn't take very long before you get to, oh man, I don't understand that. Yeah. That's weird. And it's really complicated. Uh, but at a first glance, you can get pretty close to explaining things. Yeah. That's really fascinating. Um, and I think people will be surprised. I, like, we're pretty much out of time here. I can't believe that it's all. Oh, that's it's like 8.59. I can't believe it. We're like down to the final minute. But because um, I was going to say, I think people will be surprised that water, like, almost all of our electrical generation comes from water. Like, water kind of runs oh, all the that's power right. plants. Absolutely. And there's like, all these things that uh, you just kind of take it for granted. You don't really realize that really. There's that joke from that 70s show where they talk about a car that runs on water. Well, in some way, that's kind of true because without. Oh, power absolutely. generation facilities, you couldn't refine crude. and You couldn't refine crude. You couldn't, you couldn't any power any electrical vehicle. No. That's where we get the hydrogen for any hydrogen power vehicles. Yeah. Right? It's all water-based. Yeah. Right? And even even nuclear plants, right? It's all based on heating up water. Heating up wa- water, That's yeah. right. Yeah. Well, you'll have to come back, Aaron, and we can nerd out a little more. Yeah, well, I, we I really never wish... actually talked about science outreach <laughs> specifically. We yeah. did some here. But... Yeah, yeah, well, this is outreach. People That's probably right. want, you know, maybe some some younger person is like, what do you mean the world runs on water? Oh, well, you absolutely. can go, <laughs> no pun intended, but go dive in and you'll you'll be surprised. But yeah, I really appreciate you coming on the show. We can uh, maybe schedule an, another one for the Yeah, no, that'd be great. Thanks for having me. Awesome. All right, so uh, I've been your host, John Adamian, here on the Radical Fabulatorium. I've been talking to Aaron Granger, a teaching professor here at UNB. And uh, thanks a lot for listening tonight on Local FM 107.3. Have a great night, everyone. <laughs>